Well, good evening. Um, for those of you who have had the opportunity to sit through some of our Wednesday evening equipping hours with the children, you have a tendency to know, you, you know that I'm somewhat long-winded, so I think Blake was fairly strategic in placing me here, knowing that the Lord's Supper was right behind me, and so to, to move more towards brevity, we'll see how well I do with that. Um, in preparation for tonight's devotional teaching, I was kind of struggling with the uh, introduction, and, and Blake graciously provided me with that introduction this morning when he wrapped up his sermon talking about those, those throwaway scriptures, those scriptures that oftentimes we just run right through. And so right now, I'm going to have a little interactive portion of tonight's uh, teaching. By a show of hands, and be honest, how many of you, when you're reading scripture, especially the epistles, and you read the salutation, that, that first little part, the introduction to it, you just skip right through it. Maybe even skip over it and get to the meat of it. Raise your hand. Because I am one of those, right? Okay, so one of the things that this, in preparing for this teaching, has taught me is to slow down. And to be honest with you, I should have already known this because I've had the privilege in the past to sit through an inductive study through this book of 1 Peter. And so as we go through this, we're going to see that you know what, some of these introductory verses, where they're just saying hi and giving their name, it has meaning, and we should stop and take a look at that. Before we read our passage, we need to set the historical context. Because if we don't know the historical context for which 1 Peter was written, then we're going to miss why Peter is using some of the language that he's using. So 1 Peter is written somewhere around AD 64 to 65. And if I were to ask, there may be some history buffs in here. You may know what's going on in the known world at that point in time. But for those of you who don't, okay. So the church was launched following the crucifixion and ascension of Christ. The, the Holy Spirit has been poured out on the church during Pentecost. So this is all in the decades leading up to this time. The church in Jerusalem experienced great growth, tremendous growth, because of the work of the Holy Spirit. And they also experienced great persecution. In fact, I'm going to pause right here. If you look throughout recorded history, some of the most expansive explosion of the gospel being spread happened when? When the church was being actively persecuted. So during this persecution, the believers in Jerusalem, many of them, fled. And when they fled, what went with them? The gospel. So we see churches being planted everywhere these believers are fleeing to and stopping. We also see the Apostle Paul and other apostles planting churches as they go. Okay? So why is this important? Well, we're going to start talking about a letter written to some churches that were planted in the provinces of Rome. Okay? Some of the other things that are going on there. The known world is ruled by the Roman Empire. The gentleman, or the man, some known as, uh, call him a maniac, so I think I should probably rewind that and not call him a gentleman. The guy that was the emperor of the Roman Empire, Nero, had an insatiable appetite for building. The problem is Rome was full of these beautiful structures, temples, villas, and even behind some of these beautiful structures, tenement buildings that were made of wood. Well, he didn't have room to build. So according to tradition, in order to make room to build, to satisfy his ego, 
he burned the city to the ground. He realized that the citizens of Rome didn't take too kindly to that. Their culture, their life, their religion, their safety, up in flames. And they started growing in hostility towards him. And as tradition says, he needed to find a scapegoat or another target for their rage. And so he blamed the Christians for the burning of Rome in about A.D. 64, okay? Long about the time this letter is written. So let's take a look with that lens firmly in place at what this passage looks like, okay? So turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. If you've got your Bible with you, if you don't, you can use one of the chairback Bibles. You'll find 1 Peter on page 588. If you don't own a Bible, you're welcome to take that with you when we finish as our gift to you. Let's take a look at what the apostle has to tell us. 1 Peter chapter 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in the sanctification of the Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. This is God's word. Now, guys, I understand that this is the first in a series of lessons, so I, I get it that I'm, I'm kind of introducing this study. I'm setting the table here. But as I alluded to a while ago, if we're not careful, this passage of Scripture can fall into that little category of let's just get through this and get to the meat of 1 Peter 1. But what I want to do is pause right here and take a look at what Peter's telling us. And in preparation and studying this, three things started to fall out, three points that we're going to touch on tonight. And we're going to tackle these in the form of three questions. So the three points are the author, the audience, and the announcement the author, the audience, and the announcement. So the author, who wrote it? Who wrote this letter? The audience, who is the intended audience who is to receive this message? And then the last one, the announcement. What is the message being sent, or better stated, what is the purpose of this particular letter? So let's take a look at point number one, the author. Who is writing this letter? And before we get going too far answering this question, let's all just agree to understand that we know that the Bible is written by men under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So God moved on the hearts of men to write what he had them write. I, I get that. So I'm not questioning that truth. This is not a heretic, her, heretical question, okay? I, I, I'm stipulating right now we understand that the Holy Spirit moved on Peter's heart but it did move on a man's heart. So let's take a look at that man. He introduces himself. Take a look at what he says. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. Now guys, I'm gonna be honest with you. We could stop and do a multi-week lesson season, um, series just on those six words. We're not gonna do that right here because we don't have time. In fact, you're gonna find that as we go through tonight, we're gonna be pointing at things and we're gonna stop and gaze at other things. But we're going to stop and gaze at this. Peter begins this lesson with his new name. This is not his given name. This is not the name he spent most of his life, early life with. The name he was given at birth was Simon. 
Jesus changes his name in his initial meeting. We see a story of that in John chapter 1, where Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. We've come to know that the name Peter or Petros means stone or rock. The thing that's interesting about this name change, if we read through the Gospels, is that it's somewhat fluid. We see him referred to as Peter. We see him called Simon Peter. And we see him called Simon. Why? What's going on with the differences there? Why the, the back and forth? John MacArthur has an idea. He's got two of them, really. He says, the first, he'll be called Simon in Scripture when there's nothing more than earthly identification. Okay? So this is Simon's boat, or this is Simon's house, or this is Simon's wife's mother. We see that going on there. So in Scripture, we see Simon referred to, Peter referred to Simon when there's just an earthly identification. The second one's a little more insightful. It's a bit more in line with, with what Paul talks about in Romans chapter 7, which is the war of the two natures. And it's indicative of his personality and character, the same that we all have. MacArthur says about it like this, says it this way. He's also called Simon when he's sinful. He says, when he acts like his old self, he gets called by his old name. It's not a bad idea because it points out directly to him what's going on in the Lord's mind. When the Lord wanted to focus on his sinfulness, he called him by his old name. Wow, I never stopped to think about it that way. But if you read the Gospels that way, when you see Peter being called Simon, wait a minute, he's in the flesh. When he's referred to as Peter, he's in the spirit. So a new lens for you to read the Gospels through. We see a very powerful illustration of this in Luke chapter 22 when Jesus foretells of Peter's denial of Christ. In verse 31, he says, Simon, Simon, and he uses it twice. So we know that that's an emphatic statement, okay? He's really calling attention to this. Hey, pay attention to this. This is serious. Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. Now, I don't know about you, but if I was just told that Satan asked to sift me like wheat, I think my response is going to be say, you said no, right? You, you, just, you didn't give him permission to do this, right? But listen to what Jesus says in verse 32. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Well, guys, I think when we read through 1 Peter, we're going to see Peter living out that command of Christ. We're going to see Peter living out this prayer of Christ that you may strengthen your brothers. And, guys, that right there just points to the announcement, points to the purpose of the letter. And we're going to get to that here in just a few minutes. You see, in this introduction, in this salutation, he uses the name Peter. Well, this letter is written after his restoration. This letter is written after Jesus has restored his relationship on that beach next to the Sea of Galilee on that faithful day. He's given him his marching orders. If you were to turn to John chapter 21, you would see this account. Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Feed my lambs. Tend my sheep. Feed my sheep. And then later, follow me. 
And that's exactly what he's doing as he's writing this letter. We also see Peter identify himself as an apostle. We know that Jesus chose, and remember that word, chose, 12 men to fill this role or apostle or ambassador here on earth during his earthly ministry. If you want to look up that account, you can look at it in Luke chapter 6, verse 13, and we'll actually read that here in a few minutes. But we also see in his high priestly prayer in John chapter 17 that Jesus outlines the mission for these 12 men when he says, as you have sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. Well, what does this mean for our study of 1 Peter 1? Peter is identifying himself by his new name in Christ. Okay? I am Peter. I'm not Simon right now. I'm Peter. I'm in Christ. He's identifying himself as one chosen by Christ to go into the world and to fulfill a mission. So if we ask that question again, who's the author? The author is Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ. That brings us to point number two, the audience. Who is this letter written to? Who is the intended audience of this letter? Well, looking back to verse one, we see him say, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. And we're going to pause right here for just a minute. Because in the first verse of this letter, Peter jumps right into the deep end of one of the most hated doctrines in all the Bible. In fact, A.W. Pink says it is one of the most hated doctrines. He's quoted in volume 9 of his studies in the scripture as saying, the truth of eternal punishment is one of the most objectionable to non-professors. That of God's sovereign election is the truth that is most loathed and reviled by the majority of those claiming to be believers. He goes on to say that, let it plainly be announced that salvation originated not in the will of man, but in the will of God, that were it not so, none would or could be saved. For as a result of the fall, man has lost all desire and will unto that which is good and that even the elect themselves would have to be made willing. Guys, he's talking, A.W. Pink is talking about election. He's talking about the fact that God has marked out those who he will call. So who's Peter writing to? Those who have been chosen, the elect, the called out ones. This is not a new idea in Scripture. This is not the first time that we've seen this. The scriptures are full of examples of God calling out or choosing out a people for himself, people for his divine purposes. Some examples of those include Noah in Genesis chapter 6. He's called out for a purpose. Abram in Genesis chapter 12. Isaac in Genesis 21. Jacob in Genesis 25. Judah in Micah 5. David in 1 Samuel 16. John the Baptist in Luke 1. And on and on and on. We alluded to it a while ago, but we even see Jesus choosing a group for himself for his purpose in Luke chapter 6, verses 12 and 13, where it reads like this. In these days, he went out to the mountain to pray. And all night he continued in prayer to God. And when day came, 
he, calls, he called his disciples and chose from them twelve, whom he named apostles. So Peter is addressing in the first verses of this letter this doctrine of election. He's driving home the identity of those who he wants to hear, who he's writing to. He's reminding them of who they are. They are the elect, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ, and for sprinkling with his blood. He is reminding his hearers of their identity in Christ. They are the elect, the called out ones, believers chosen by God. He's saying, you have been chosen by God himself. Later, in chapter 2, he repeats this idea and builds upon it. In verses 9 and 10, when he says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. This is a good reminder for us. For those who have come to faith in Christ, we are chosen of God. We are his people. Jesus reminded his disciples of this very thing in John 15, verse 16, when he says, You did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. Do you see it? Do you see it? We're chosen by God. But when did this happen? Did this happen at our point of justification? Did this happen when we prayed the prayer and God thought we were just sincere enough to say, okay, I, I choose you. When did this choosing happen? Well, let's look back at the scripture. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. You see that word there? Foreknowledge. We are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God. Well, what does this mean? Guys, this is pretty heavy stuff, so if you've got a John MacArthur study Bible, I'm going to invite you to look down to the bottom because I'm going to borrow some of his notes. The word does not refer to awareness of what is going to happen, but it clearly means a predetermined relationship into existence by decreeing it into existence ahead of time. Christians are foreknown for salvation in the same way Christ was foreordained before the foundation of the world to be a sacrifice for sins. Foreknowledge means that God planned before, not that he observed before. Thus, God pre-thought and predetermined or predestined each Christian's salvation. Paul addresses this in Romans chapter 8, verses 29 and 30. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn of many brothers. And those, he, whom, he fore, and those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. 
And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Back to 1 Peter. Peter is telling his readers, he's telling those reading this letter, you are chosen by God, and not just that, but you were chosen by God since before the foundation of the world. What an amazing thought. That before God spoke the world into existence, he knew you would come to faith in Christ. So they are the elect. They are chosen. But that's not all. Peter also calls them exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. The word exile is interesting in that it has a little bit of a different connotation in the Old Testament than what it has in the New Testament. Oftentimes in the Old Testament, when you see that word exile, it's used in conjunction with God's judgment being poured out, typically being poured out on his chosen people, Israel, for rebellion excuse me, against them. We see in 2 Kings 17, the northern kingdom being carried away by the Assyrians. And we see in 2 Kings 24, the southern kingdom of Judah being carried away by Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon. In both of these accounts, the chosen people of God are being carried away, made exiles in foreign lands because of their rebellion against God. In the New Testament, this word exile is used much differently. It shows up about three times in the New Testament, and each time it doesn't refer to God's judgment, but rather it refers to God setting apart or separating those to himself. Listen to the way Spiro Zodiades defines this word. They are strangers, sojourners, not simply passing through, but a foreigner who has settled down, however briefly, next to the natives. Settled down, however briefly, next to the natives. Well, I lived this out just recently. My family and I, back at the beginning of July, went on vacation. We had an opportunity to go to Wyoming and Montana. It was a great time away, a great time to connect. But while we were in this small town of West Yellowstone, Montana, we had a rented a VRBO. We had this house that served as our living space. Now, while we stayed there during our time on vacation, that was our living space, but that was not our home. Well, Peter is writing to these folks, calling them exiles, saying, hey, you live in these areas, you live in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. That's your living space, but that is not your home. Your home, because you are chosen, is in the heavenly places. Well, guys, we take that to ourselves. We may call our home Fort Smith, Barling, Lavaca, Charleston. Guys, this is just, these are just our temporary living spaces. Okay, We have a home that is not here. Jesus tells us this in John 14 when he says, Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, what I have told you, that I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, I will come. I will come again and take you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. Guys, we have a home prepared for us in heaven if we're in Christ. So Peter's audience, they're elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, 
Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit. The sanctification of the Spirit. We hear that word sanctification a lot. We hear it in the form of the tenses of salvation, justification, sanctification, glorification. So it sits right there in the middle. But what truly is that? Paul writes in his letter to the second letter to the Thessalonians, but we always, we ought to always give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, because God chose you as the first fruits to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit in belief and truth. So we see sanctification happens by the Holy Spirit. And if we were to refer back to Romans, that verse in Romans that we read, Jesus tells us, or Paul tells us, that it is the conforming or the process of being conformed to the image of his son Jesus. Jesus tells us that the work of the Holy Spirit is to guide us into all truth, that it will glorify me, for he will take what is mine and declare it to you. Jesus prays for his disciples and all of those that come to faith as a result of their work, that we be sanctified in the truth, that his word is truth. So sanctification is to be set apart, to have holiness produced in you, separated unto God. So as Peter's audience, elect exiles, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Holy Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ. We see in Ephesians that we are the workmanship of workmanship of Christ, workmanship of Jesus, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. We also see in Matthew that we are to let our light shine before others so that they may see our good works and do what? Give us glory? Pat us on the back? Say, that a boy? No. So why are we to let our good works show? Why are we to let our light shine? so that others will see them and give glory to God in heaven. So we have been sanctified by the Spirit for obedience to Christ, to walk in the good works that he's prepared for us ahead of time, for the sprinkling with his blood. Guys, this is a picture going back to Exodus, back to Exodus chapter 24. So Moses spoke the words, the commands of God to the people. Then he wrote them down. Then he spoke them again. And guess what the people of Israel did? They said, we'll do that. We'll obey that. Then Moses and the priest, they went through and slaughtered all of these animals as sacrifices, gathering up the blood. They burnt half the blood on the altar. And what did they do with the other half? They sprinkled it on the people, sealing the covenant in blood. This is a picture of that agreement in the new covenant, faith in the shedding of the blood of Christ on the cross not only activates God's promise to give the believer perfect atonement for sin, but it also brings the believer into a covenant by one's promise of obedience to his word. So not only are we brought into a relationship with Christ by the forgiveness of our sins, but we're also brought into a relationship with Christ to be in obedience to his word. 
Remember what Jesus said in John 14, 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. So Jesus is tying obedience to love. He says, you can't love me if you're not obeying or keeping my commandments. We can't separate obedience to Christ and love with Christ, for Christ. So who is Peter's audience? The elect exiles, according to the foreknowledge of God, the Father, and the sanctification of the Holy Spirit for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood. That brings us to the third point, the announcement. And it's going to be much shorter than the first two, I promise. Because quite honestly, the announcement is setting the table for the rest of the lessons, the rest of the series in 1 Peter chapter 1. But he ends verse 2 by saying, May grace and peace be multiplied to you. Now this is where the historical context that we talked about earlier connects to the identity of Peter's audience. You'll see it more clearly in the weeks to come. But I do want to point you to chapter 5, verse 12. So if you've got your Bible, flip over there, chapter 5, verse 12. This is where Peter says, this is the purpose of this letter. So I've written this letter to you. You've read all of it. Now this is why I'm writing this to you. By Silvanus, a faithful brother, as I regard him, I have written briefly to you, exhorting and declaring that this is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Peter's saying, I know you're suffering. I know you're about to suffer because of the persecution that's ongoing. Christ also suffered and set us an example. He says, this suffering is also to remind you that this is not your home. You're exiles. This isn't just your living space. You're destined for another home. In the midst of this persecution and suffering, remember who you are. You are chosen by God. You are elect, the called out ones. Remember what you believe. This is the true grace of God. Stand firm in it. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this word that we've seen tonight. For these words that often fall through the cracks as throwaway scriptures, but if we pause and take a look at them in context for which they were written, their original intent, we see the power that lives there. Peter's writing to those who are elect. That's us. The chosen ones, the called out ones. Lord, in our world today, it is a dark world and growing darker every day. Help us be reminded of our identity in Christ. We are the elect. Help us to stand firm in it. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.